King James Onlyism. What is it? What's its history? Where does it come from? When did it start? What are some biblical perspectives applied to the position of King James Onlyism? What about some historical issues, if there are any? And does King James Onlyism make any logical leaps that are insurmountable? Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. We're available anywhere you get your podcast. If you're watching here on YouTube, please do not forget to click that subscribe button down below your screen and the bell for continuing notifications. Give a thumbs up to this episode if it's helpful for you and tell your friends about it. King James Onlyism. I want to go over uh, really five things concerning King James Onlyism. What it is, its history, Biblical problems, historical problems, and logical leaps or logical problems. So five things related to King James Onlyism. Let me start off by making uh, a couple of introductory remarks. Number one, the reason I want to go through this, and this is just going to be very cursory. For those who are intimately familiar with this discussion, this is not going to be satisfactory. This is very introductory. This is very surface level. So don't expect this to be uh, an advanced class or something like that on the King James only controversy or the King James only position and what uh, an alternative response to it would be. Um, This is going to be very summary, uh, to put it lightly. Um, But the reason I want to go through this is, number one, I'm going to be teaching this at my church this evening for our Wednesday night uh, Bible study slash prayer meeting. And so this kind of coincides with uh, something I'm doing at the church. Uh, But the other reason is It's an important discussion. Uh, This discussion comes up uh, every now and again on social media, but this is a discussion that has actually split churches in the past. This this has caused people to leave churches. It's caused people to find churches and and, and join churches. So this is an important discussion, maybe less so now than it has been over the last few decades, but it's still pretty important. I I remember I received a phone call from a uh, King James only uh, individual who was calling, uh, he called the, uh, the the office phone at the church and was wanting some information on our church. And the very first question that he let off with was, what Bible version do you guys preach from? And I said, well, you know, a very kind gentleman, very polite. And I said, well, we, I preach from the New King James. I do our scripture reading from the King James Version. His countenance immediately changed, and he said, well, isn't that a shame? And I said, well, sir, uh, do you, you know, I, I just tried to politely as possible ask him the question, do you think that the King James Version can be improved upon. And he said, well, no, I don't, I don't think it can be improved upon. I think it's, I think it is the English version of the Holy Bible and any other version is inadequate. And I said, well, what about, you know, first, uh, maybe it's, it's second John actually. Um, well, let me find it here. Uh, second John, what about second John and, uh, the, the language of the antichrist in, uh, verses seven through eight. Uh, and what I'm talking about is Second John verses seven through eight. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Now, there are those who, because this text is translated to uh, a deceiver and an antichrist, with the indefinite article there in the English, have actually had the doctrine of the Antichrist influenced as a result of that translation, but actually in the original language, there's a definite article there. So I see no reason why we couldn't translate that to the deceiver and the Antichrist, which is actually influential in terms of our understanding of the Antichrist and the relevance of the Antichrist in the historical timeline and so on. 
Um, and, you know, I just asked him that question, you know, could it be improved, uh, improved upon in that sense? Like, could there be better renderings of various texts? Uh, the text that I read to you was the New King James Version, but it, it, it translates it similarly to the King James Version um, with the indefinite article. And, and his immediate response was to hang up the phone. And that, I found that to be largely the case interacting with those who hold a very strict King James-only position. Um, but all that to say, it, this, is a, this is an important issue for people. And I also want to say that I, I love my brothers who are, you know, prefer the King James only, uh, or they think that the King James version is the best translation. Uh, I think there are those who have a more rational position than some. Peter Ruckman, for example, goes so far as to, at some point, affirm the, um, you know, spirit-wrought inspiration of the English in the King James Version, which I think is is astounding. But, um, but I I I respect those who have, um, you know, an actual thought-out position as to why we should use the King James Version over other versions. Usually, the more thought-out positions come from. Uh, you know, quarters such as a, uh, a Textus Receptus priority, uh, that they prefer the Textus Receptus uh, Greek uh, manuscript uh, set or the received text, the Greek New Testament, um, over the critical text or the uh, majority text position. Um, and, and I understand that, and I can sympathize with that. And so I, I respect those brothers who, who uh, would hold that position. And, uh, um, but what I'm talking about here is a King James onlyism. Uh, well, let me just define it here as I have it in my outline. What do I mean by King James onlyism? Uh, I, I mean by King James onlyism the opinion that the King James Version is the only complete English Bible translation. Uh, and so is the only true English Bible that we have. Now, that doesn't require one to say that the uh, that the King James Version is inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, but it is, it is you know, a, a step under that rung. It is saying that the King James Version is the only proper English Bible that we have. If you use another version, if you use another translation, then you're using an inadequate uh, copy of God's Word, which would be... Uh, rendered void by those who think in these terms. Um, so I'm not referring to those who merely prefer the King James only, or I'm not referring to those who merely prefer the King James version. Uh, I'm not talking about those who hold to the TR priority of the Texas Receptus position within the science of text criticism. Uh, you know, I'm talking, I'm referring to those who believe the King James version to be the only complete translation of the English Bible, and so the only English Word of God we currently have in our possession. That's what I'm responding to here. Um, and so in terms of defining King James onlyism, let's go with the definition. It's the opinion that the King James Version is the only complete English Bible translation that we have in the English language. Okay, and that's problematic for several reasons. And um, Basically, I'm going to look at what I want to. What I would like to do is look at history first, but then we'll look at some biblical problems, some historical problems with the position, and we'll also look at some logical leaps that the um, that the position uh, no doubt makes. Um, so, you might be surprised to know if you're new to this conversation, uh, or maybe you're not surprised to know at all that the King James 
only position did not originate with the translators of the King James Version. All right, so uh, the King, the the position King James Onlyism did not begin with the translators of that version. Uh, and in fact, if you read the preface to the 1611, which is, you know, I'm talking about the first edition of the King James Version. There's been several revisions since then. We'll look at that here in a moment. But if you're looking at the preface to the 1611, which you can find on uh, the uh, ccel.org, very handy website, uh, uh, Classical Christian Ethereal Library, um, you can find it there in full, uh, and you'll see that they, when you read their section on Bible translations, uh, and when you read the section, the way that website has it divided up, you read the section, uh, an answer to the imputation of our adversaries, because we're people who, who uh, dissented from the need for a translation in, in the 1600s, um, you'll see very quickly that the if the translators of the King James Version were to hear of King James Onlyism, they would have opposed that. They would have opposed that, according to the very preface of, of the uh, King James Version itself. Um, former professor at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, Bill Combs, uh, I think he pastors now. He's retired from Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, but I think he pastors Community Bible Church in Trenton, Michigan. Um, he suggests King James onlyism, or KJVO, as it's sometimes known in acronym form, probably began in May of 1881. So you're looking at a couple of hundred years plus removed from the actual translation of the King James Version. Uh, what happened was in 1870, uh, about a decade before that point, the Church of England decided to produce really what amounted to a revision of the King James Version that they that they had at that point, which was a revision of a revision of a revision. Um, and so the Church of England decided in 1870 that they needed a reversion, a revision. This eventually became the RV, the Revised Version. Um, but they, in that revision, they de they decided to use. Instead of the TR, the Westcott and Hort Greek New Testament, which is a, a critical text using you know some of the earlier earlier extant Greek manuscripts, uh, and that disappointed a lot of people. Uh, it had it had disappointed mainly those who had grown accustomed to the original 1611. Uh, these were also those who would have had an affinity toward the crown and the monarchy, seeing that the, in England the crown was of divine right. In other words, if you were a king or a queen in England, especially preceding the 1800s, but it was still in the culture in the 19th century, you were seen to be ordained of God to be in that position. And so to have a king like King James back in the early uh, 17th century uh, commission a translation of the English Bible, it was seen as essentially a divine act. All right, And so you had those who were loyal to the crown, obviously, this being in England and relevant to the Church of England, who saw this as a departure from one of God's ordained means to bring an English translation to the English church. And so there was a, there was a great deal of dissent. John William Bergen was the strongest, most outspoken opponent and began writing 
review articles against the revised version or the RV. He began writing those review articles in 1881. And I think he wrote uh, uh, prolifically uh, years after that, um, criticizing this revised version. And this is really the flashpoint historically for the modern King James Version only position uh, that you've probably or may have experienced today or maybe even that you're a part of today. And so if you're a part of the King James only position and, and you believe that, thanks for watching the channel. I appreciate your patience and um, hopefully you can continue with me. Um, if you have any, you know, questions or concerns or comments, please leave them underneath this video. If you're watching on YouTube, you can leave them in the comments section. Um, but prior to this time, prior to really 1881, the, the King James Version only movement that we know of today did not exist prior to that time. And so this is a relatively novel uh, position, even in the English-speaking, theologically English-speaking world. Uh, this was a novel position. All right. So uh, very new in relation to the history of the church in the English-speaking world. Uh, and so, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's worth noting that any translation in the church's history, um, you know, what I'm, what, the point I'm going to make here is that the King James-only movement is not the only movement of its kind. Uh, there have been other movements throughout church history that have favored one translation in one language, uh, it's happened time and time again, and I think it's worth noting that any translation in the church's history that achieves a wide readership eventually comes to be thought of as the version, right? This happens time and time again, and so the King James Version is just, you know, one phenomenon among many phenomena. Uh, so, for example, Jerome in the 4th to 5th century uh, translated the... Uh, the existing Latin manuscripts, I think he used, um, I'm not sure about his manuscripts now, whether or not he used Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, I'm not sure. There were extant Latin manuscripts prior to his translation of uh, pre-existing material, extant material, into what is now called the Vulgate. So there were those who lived during that time, 4th, 5th centuries, that criticized Jerome for translating what he had into what we now know as the Latin Vulgate. And then those who, over the years, from the 5th century onward, became accustomed to reading the Vulgate in the Latin, or those accustomed to hearing the Vulgate, even though they couldn't understand it, most, most likely, in the Latin, criticized translations, for example, at the time of the Reformation, that sought to translate from the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek into uh, the vulgar tongue. For example, Luther's translation, you can think of Wycliffe and others, who tried to uh, translate the the original languages into the English and into the German, respectively. Uh, so they received criticism for departing from the received version, which was the Vulgate. The Roman Catholic Church had, by that time, really codified its use of the Vulgate as something that was official. The Vulgate was an official uh, translation, being as widespread as it was in the Romish Church, plus you have the um, uh, the kind of undertones of tradition too emerging by this point, uh, and saw church tradition uh, really uh, developing a, a hard stance on the Vulgate as one being authoritative to depart from the church's stance on the Vulgate would have been considered a departure from orthodoxy. And so people were martyred for this. This uh, was a an issue that actually has cost lives 
in history. But my only point in saying that, rehashing the history here of those various translations in different languages that had been received, is just to say that the King James only uh, position is not is not uh, uh, new. It's in principle, it's not new. This has happened with Latin versions. This has happened with you know versions in other uh, tongues. I don't have this in my notes, but I will go ahead and say that there were English versions that preceded the King James Version. For example, the the, the Wycliffe Bible precedes the uh, King James Version. And, and it is worth noting that the King James translators did text criticism of their own. So, for example, you get texts like, um, and I'm not going to be, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this up, but... Um, uh, if I can, I will. I will uh, hopefully be able to contrast a couple things. Okay, so the Wycliffe Bible's 14th century in Psalm 14:3, and, and this happens in a lot of different places in the Wycliffe Bible versus the King James, where in Psalm 14 verse 3, you have a very long verse in the Wycliffe Bible. The King James, and that's and that's because they are, I believe they're they're using the the Septuagint reading of that verse. The King James Version translators didn't see reason to carry that over, so they're looking at the Masoretic text, um, and they're they're using that. And so Psalm 14, verse 3 in the King James Version is much shorter than uh, its English predecessor in the Wycliffe Bible, Psalm 14, 3 is. Um, and so there's, there's a, a version of text criticism even going on with the King James Version. It's very arbitrary to to say, well, text criticism ought to stop with the King James Version. Why? Why is that the case? Why ought text criticism stop with the King James Version? Um, if the King James translators were doing the same thing, why stop, you know, why stop with them, even when they themselves are promoting need for better translations and translations into uh, the vulgar tongue and so on? So it's something to, something to think about. Now, moving from the history... Uh, that's a very brief history, very rapid-fire history. Um, some biblical problems, some historical problems, and the logical leap of King James onlyism. So let's look at some biblical problems. Actually, we're only going to look at one biblical problem: the obvious biblical problem with King James onlyism. And most of the times, what you what, most of the time what you have in the King James only camp is a form of biblicism. If it doesn't say it in the text of Scripture, then we're not going to believe it. Or you, you hear phrases like, if the Bible says it, uh, I believe it, that settles it kind of thing. And there's no exposition, there's no good and necessary consequence. This is usually anti-credal, anti-tradition uh, individuals and churches that hold to King James onlyism. But the irony is that there is no precedent in the text of Scripture itself for King James onlyism. Uh, that's the main problem with King James onlyism, is that the Bible itself never commands us to use specific versions or specific translations of the originals. Um, it never commands us to use the original Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek either. So it never forbids a form of textual criticism. Um, it never promotes a particular translation over the other. Scripture doesn't do that. So this has to be a convention of men or a man-made tradition. Um, it's interesting that the King James-only movement claims to concern itself with being biblical oftentimes, and its concern is to be biblical. That's why they want to hold on to the King James Version so tightly, because uh, they see it to be the only biblical, truly biblical translation. 
and yet its own position can't be biblically argued from the text. So I'd say that's the main biblical issue is there's no scripture that actually condones uh, this kind of uh, this kind of strict adherence to a particular translation. The historical problems are twofold. There's two basic historical problems with this. Uh, King James onlyism is not the position of the 1611 translators. So let me give you an example of what I mean. If you look at the preface to the 1611, which I believe is addressed directly to King James. Um, it's it's by the translators uh, to the king. The King James uh, translators say this, lest the church be driven to the like exigent, it is necessary to have translations in a readiness. In other words, translations are good. Good translations are good. Translation it is that openeth the window to let in the light, that breaketh the shell, that we may eat the kernel, that putteth aside the curtain, that we may look into the most holy place, that removeth the cover of the of the well, that we may come by the water, even as Jacob rolled away the stone from the mouth of the well, by which means the flocks of Laban were watered, Genesis 29.10. So what they're saying there is translations are necessary that the people can come to the word of God and understand it so that the people can draw from the wellspring of the divine word. It's also worth noting that they cite the Paris version and the Louvain version, two French standards, as a comparison for their project, uh, which would have been a difference in dialect, not a difference in two totally, completely different languages, uh, but two different dialects. We have to remember that the Elizabethan English is not, it's not the vulgar dialect of the land. And the concern with the King James translators is they wanted translations that were translated into the vulgar tongue of the people, vulgar language, vulgar dialect as well. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to try to rekindle some classical English uh, to even keep the Elizabethan English um, as, in the household and, and even train your children in it. I think there's much value in that. Um, but in terms of the understanding of our youths. Um, look, languages change. Uh, Elizabethan English is a descendant of Old English. Now, you probably, you, you may have had people in the 17th century and 16th century saying, well, this new English is so terrible. You know, think of the ways, think, think of the good old days back when we were speaking Old English, which for reference sake, Old English is like a totally different language, right? Uh, it's definitely not the vulgar. And, and so, Languages change. It doesn't always mean the language is being watered down. It doesn't always mean that the language is 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 being cheapened. It just means that the language changes insofar as sociology changes and populations change and uh, mixture of ethnicities within any given region changes and uh, and people move around the planet and people move around countries and new countries rise and countries fall and shift geopolitical movements and all that. Languages change. It's bound to happen. Uh, and in modern modern English is a descendant of Elizabethan English, but it's also different. And it's difficult sometimes to understand the idiosyncrasies of Elizabethan English uh, as compared to our modern English. That doesn't mean that modern English, I know slang is a devolution, right? But modern English is not necessarily a devolution from Elizabethan English. It's just a variation of dialect. And so it's proper... To, uh, to actually update our translations into these 
uh, into these vulgar dialects. Uh, so the first problem historically is that the King James Version translators didn't even hold to King James onlyism. Uh, of course, looking at the history, we, we saw that that position probably arose around 1881. The second historical problem is that the 1611 has been revised itself several times. So, of course, you have to ask yourself, which version of, version of the King James Version is the correct version? Uh, Bill Combs, once more, he says this. He says, the King James Version of 1611 has actually been revised a number of times over the years particularly in 1629, 1638, 1762, and 1769. He says current editions of the King James Version are substantially reprints of the 1769 edition by Dr. Benjamin Blaney. Uh, so if you pick up a, a, a King James Version today, if you go to Lifeway or uh, Mardell's or something like that, and you pick up a, a, a version of the King James, or if you order it on online, if you're not specifically purchasing the first edition of the 1611, uh, if, if you're not purchasing a reprint of the first edition, or if you're not purchasing a specific reprint of the 1611, you're purchasing a revision of the 1611. You're either purchasing the 1629, Right. If you're going to hold high the King James Version and say this is God's word in the English uh, and it's the only valid version of the Bible that we have, well, then which version of the King James Version do you have, number one? And number two, if you have the 1769, how do you know the 1769 King James Version is as good or as faithful as the 1611 King James Version? Um, so that's a. I think that's a legitimate question, and I think it's a problem, historically speaking. Lastly, some historical, or some log sorry, some logical leaps that King James only onlyism seems to make. It makes four logical leaps. It makes four logical leaps in preaching, in commentary, in discipleship, and in missions. It makes a logical leap in preaching, because the job of the preacher, or the pastor teacher, is to explain the Word of God. The Word of God has to be explained. It has to be interpreted, exposited, explained to the people. So the preacher is an interpreter and expositor of the Word of God, and that involves the communication of the Bible in words other than the Bible's own words. And so in a sense, inevitably, even if you have a pastor that preaches from the King James, on, or the King James Version and is a King James onlyist, you're going to get summaries of the biblical text and explanations of the biblical text that are his own words intended to explain the words of the King James Version. And so in a sense, you're getting a translation of a translation in the pulpit, all right? But if the Elizabethan English of the King James Version is the only legitimate way to communicate and transmit the Word of God, then it would seem to um, illegitimize preaching. Preaching involves the explanation and exposition of the Word of God in sermonic form. So the King James Version onlyest preacher seems to be inconsistent if he uses his own words to summarize and explain those words of his King James Version. It makes a logical leap in commentary. Commentaries require exegetical reflection of the Word of God in words other than those found in the Word of God. Right? Otherwise, you wouldn't have a commentary. You would just have a reprint of the Bible. And so commentary assumes that there's commentary on the Word of God, using words not in Scripture to explain words that are. 
King James onlyists who use commentaries to know the word violate their own core commitment to the language or the dialect of the King James Version if they believe that the King James Version is the only legitimate way to communicate the substantial meaning of the Word of God. It makes a logical leap. Uh, King James onlyism makes a logical leap in discipleship because to disciple someone involves the explanation of the Word of God through teaching and through life example, which goes beyond the Elizabethan dialect of the King James Version. And so King James onlyists are inconsistent if they disciple other Christians by using words and examples that are not themselves found in the King James Version. And then lastly, and I think most pertinently, King James onlyism is violated in missiology. It has to make a logical leap in terms of missiology. If you have King James onlyists who all of a sudden are thrown onto the mission field or they enter into the mission field, they realize quickly they can't use their King James Version on the mission field. Elizabethan English is simply inaccessible to people who do not speak English. For example, the missionaries to Spanish countries will typically use the Reina Valera 1960 revision. Uh, and even though it's translated from the Masoretic text, in the case of the Hebrew, in the Texas Receptus, in the case of the Greek, like the King James is, it uses, number one, a different language altogether in translation because it's in Spanish. And number two, it makes use of existing in its translational history, the reign of Valera, namely the, the first version of it, uh, back in the 16th century, I believe it was, made use of existing translations already. The Ferrara Bible for the Old Testament and the Santis Pagnino for the New Testament. And so it's not simply resting on the original languages. It's not simply resting on the TR or the Masoretic text. It's also using other translations as influential translations for the final product of the Reign of Valera. Uh, the Reign of Valera in 1960 is obviously no uh, exception to that. So there's all sorts of leaps and bounds that King James Onlyism has to make, uh, all sorts of special pleading that has to go on with regard to missions, discipleship, commentaries, preaching, etc. Because the reality is no preacher today, no matter how hardcore King James only as they are, uh, no commentary author, no person who's discipling another Christian, and no no missionary who's on a mission uh, who's on a missions field that that doesn't speak English uh, can get around the fact that the King James version uh, is limited. It needs to be explained, it needs to be exposited, it needs to be interpreted, it needs to be some some of those English words. So get this. So Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek need to be explained. They need to be translated and explained. But furthermore, there are a lot of words in the he in the uh, King James Version that need to be explained because of a because of a uh, a kind of dialectical bridge between our generation and those generations of yesteryear. There are words that need to be explained. Um, in the English that current or modern English readers don't understand and don't use in their everyday, uh, in their everyday English and their everyday parlance, and so it, it creates issues that I think fits very well with the sentiments of the King James translators. The King James translator sentiment being that new translations are important. There need to be translations that fit the dialect in the language of the people so that the people can come unhindered by a dialectical gap or a linguistic gap and draw from the wellspring of God's holy word. So anyway, 
this is an extra episode this week. It's a bonus. There's an episode coming out uh, tomorrow, uh, usual time, uh, going to be on uh, the immutability of God uh, in terms of pastoral application. Um, uh, and, uh, and so, if this was helpful, subscribe to the channel and share it with your friends. God bless. Have a wonderful rest of your day.